This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, I'm Alex Hochuli, and this is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. For those of you unfamiliar with what we do here, our starting point is at the end of history, that period in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government. That's now over. What we're seeing today is the crumbling of the technocratic managerialism that ruled Europe and North America until around 2016. We've seen the common sense of liberal politics appended by phenomena like Trump and by Brexit. We're watching the decline of American hegemony play out in regions all around the world. And the thing is, the rising powers that everyone expected to take over have also refused to do so. No one's in control. And to make matters worse, those experts that people look to for information and insight have got it wrong again and again and again. So our objective with Alpha Bunga Bunga, with this project, with this podcast, is to chart what's emerging and what comes next. So myself, Alex Hochuli, and the other podcast producers and hosts, George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, as well as the range of contributors that we regularly have on, focus on the big tendencies of our times. Check out, for example, our recent episodes with Kenan Malik on identity, class, and migration, our recent chat with Angela Nagel about the Zizek-Peterson debate, or our series at the beginning of 2019 on entrepreneurs and the strange liberal defense of authoritarian rule. But the other thing is that we also take our commitment to being global seriously. So you might want to check out our episodes on Bolsonaro's Brazil, Duterte's Philippines, anti-corruption politics in Nigeria, or our stuff on Italy. And here's a little hint, we think Italy is the country of the future. You'll have to check out those episodes to understand why. I won't detain you any longer, just a quick note to say, please follow us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's at BungaCast in all those locations. And subscribe. We're launching our membership on the 1st of June. You can sign up already on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash BungaCast. We are BungaCast everywhere you wish to find us online. Two shows a month will remain free as they are now, but all the additional content, all the additional episodes will be paywalled, as will bonus stuff like live chats, Q&As, and in-depth book club style discussions. All right, here is myself, Alex Hochuli, talking to Glenn Greenwald. Hi, everyone. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli, and today we're going to talk to our guest about fake news, post-truth, mistrust, and the media. A recurrent theme on this podcast for, for regular listeners, but it's also something that we've put under a wider umbrella known as neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, or knobs for short. What's special about today is that we get to talk to none other than Glenn Greenwald about this. Very excited and pleased that Glenn was able to make time for us as he's in Sao Paulo and he's joining me today in St. today's studios. Glenn and I have just been talking off air about really bad American mainstream liberal takes on Brazil and we're going to actually <laughs> try to avoid that. But, you know, as we, can, we might come back to that. But anyway, thank you and welcome, Glenn. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, no, this is great. I think, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to get very serious and, um, you know, like not have any, no, no more banter and just like cut to the chase. Um, no, I'm joking, actually, because uh, we're going to talk about Russia Gate first, and there's, it's very hard to talk about that without we're, being we're sarcastic. Take it seriously, yeah. yeah. Um, but you've written very recently a forensic summary of the Mueller report, and concluding, as the Mueller report does, that even within that expanded scope of the investigation, it led to nothing. We know this; we can take the piss out of that sort, that whole sort of approach, that whole hysteria amongst the media. But my question is: Is it going to go away? And secondly, will another mainstream conspiracy theory take its place? Just a, a note, I think even saying mainstream conspiracy theory shows you the ridiculous situation that we're in, that we're talking about mainstream conspiracy theories, which are normally something that exists in the margins of politics. Well, I think that last point is important, actually, because conspiracy theories are often depicted as relegated to the fringe, as being the province of crazy people or countries that don't have a free press that deliberately deceive and propagandize their public. And the reality is much different. The U.S. media has been drowning in a debunked, now debunked conspiracy for the last three years almost. But it's far from the first time that happened. Obviously, in 2002 and 2003, leading up to the Iraq War, 
one of the most toxic conspiracy theories ever, namely that Saddam Hussein was in league with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, as well as possessed weapons of mass destruction, led to one of the worst political crimes of the last century. Um, there have been a lot of other conspiracy theories as well before that. When the anthrax attack happened, there were leaks from within the top levels of the U.S. government that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax attack. So these kinds of jingoistic conspiracy theories obviously were very pervasive during the Cold War as well, have always been tools of the mainstream. They just don't the get called. style as it was known in American history, right? Right. I mean, it was, it was, that at the time it was talked about as being a, an attribute of the far right because they were the fanatical cold warriors mm. seeing Kremlin influences and Ruskies under every bed and lurking behind every corner. And that's what's so fascinating about this one is that it really is a resurrection of a very old script that worked exactly for that reason because tens of millions of Americans have been inculcated for decades by media, by entertainment and by politics to view Moscow as this existential threat, to view them as constantly infiltrating U.S. politics, accusing people of having clandestine allegiances to the Kremlin is something that just feels and seems familiar. And so even though the Soviet Union itself no longer exists, and obviously the predominant ideology of Moscow has changed, the iconography of how this propaganda and this conspiracy theory has worked um, was pretty much unchanged. I mean, even to this day, you can look at mainstream liberal websites like Mother Jones and even the New York Times this week when they talk about what they call Russiagate, they'll use the hammer and sickle. Um, they love to emphasize that Putin was a former KGB a- agent yeah. precisely to tie it to, you know, there's a whole industry of espionage thrillers and fiction and, and just kind of all kinds of jingoistic propaganda that this tapped into. But it's telling that they rely on quite old resources. I mean, they're replaying old tapes, basically. They're playing old songs. And like old songs, they get worn out with time. And I think that maybe explains... It's more limited purchase relative to kind of Cold War hysteria, which was a much more widespread phenomenon, I think, in the United States. Maybe this is a question. Maybe I should phrase it as a question. How much purchase does this have? Are people emotionally invested in it? You know, to what degree are they? I think that for a long time, its primary value was that Americans were, in general, but Democrats in particular, were extremely disoriented and kind of stunned and traumatized by Donald Trump's victory, in part because it was so contrary to what they were told to expect by the people that they were supposed to be relying upon for understanding the world. It was almost like they woke up and the law of gravity no longer operated. And in part, it was because he's so divergent from how we are trained to think about presidents that they just felt like the universe had gone wrong, like something had happened that was inexplicable and needed to be fixed. And the election was over and there was no way to fix it. And so this became both kind of a unifying theory to understand what happened. Oh, it's not that our country really did elect somebody like Donald Trump. It's that basically there was cheating that was going on. This foreign villain interfered in this extraordinary way and caused it to happen. But more importantly, it became this kind of hope that it was going to result in him being dragged out of the White House in handcuffs and all of his top aides and family members being imprisoned by this heroic Superman figure that was the special counsel who was formerly the lead of the head of the FBI. The fact that he was George Bush's FBI chief and lied to the Congress about weapons of mass destruction around it up Muslims in the wake of 9-11 made him sort of an odd hero for liberals, but he, that's the role that he was assigned. And whitewashing of the recent past. I mean, a lot of this hinges on a nostalgia for a very recent past, as if the world has completely transformed in the matter of three, four years, and that, you know, they, that Bush can be re- resurrected as a liberal hero, for example. I mean, it's obviously completely absurd. We're aware that it's absurd. Um, but I think one aspect of it is, which I want to transition to, is actually the notion of fake news, right? Because to a certain extent, this relies on a notion that people are being duped, right? And that you need to ring the alarm bells to, to warn people of this. And I want to kind of unpick a little some of the aspects of the fake news panic because a lot of it does hinge on a certain notion of people as gullible idiots. And that's problematic. We wouldn't want to um, cast people in that way um, t- and take people seriously. But at the same time, we accept the the effects of fake news. I mean, 
So to take example that we're both familiar with, you know, we can laugh at the idea of, you know, Russian bots and Facebook adverts swinging the election in the U.S. And we do laugh about that. But at the same time, when you're in Brazil and Bolsonaro has just been elected on a wave of fake news uh, through WhatsApp, through pro-Bolsonaro WhatsApp groups, you do kind of feel more helpless then and kind of go, well, that's not fair. So you're a man of principle. What's the principled take on fake news? I've never understood the need for a new term to describe propaganda, deceit, and lies in service of a political agenda because it doesn't seem particularly new to me. Maybe what's new is the way in which it's disseminated, the technology that's used in order to propagate it, but what it is itself, substantively, I don't see anything novel about it, and therefore I never understood the the need for a new term for it. It always struck me as having a dual purpose. And interestingly, although Trump became one of the most aggressive and frequent um, propagators of the term, the reality is it was first created and used against him. It was created by his opponents to justify why he won the election. That was before the Kremlin, before WikiLeaks, before the New York Times were blamed. It was fake news that was blamed for why Trump was winning. And it was very predictable at the time that it would have two purposes. One would be to try and discredit any sources of information other than the most credentialed and mainstream. So if you don't read it in the New York Times or the Washington Post or see it on NBC News or see it in the BBC, you should just automatically disbelieve it. It was a way of discrediting the alternative sources of information that the Internet has generated. And then secondly, and far more disturbingly, it was obviously going to be used as a tool by centers of power to justify the suppression of information because like terrorism and like so many other terms like it, it never had any precise definition. Um, you know, we, we, we just talked about the lies of, of the Iraq war and what justified that was that fake news um, was the idea that Trump is beholden to the Kremlin and that he worked with the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election now debunked by a 22 months comprehensive. Was that fake news? Um, so I think it's extremely problematic to talk about a term that lacks any precise definition and that to me seems to be describing a phenomenon that has existed for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to the extent that there was a period in which the media was better, I don't know if we can buy into that notion, but there maybe was a period in the latter half of the 20th century, around the mid-century, where media was serious and independent and, you know, maybe there's a risk of golden ageism there, but... The media, newspapers, as, he, as it used to be known, uh, has always been afflicted by this, by the yellow press and, and by slander. And actually, most of newspapers originally were just sheets of lies. I mean, that's what that's how that's how they got their start. Um, yeah. And I mean, you, you know, you go, I mean, you go, obviously the Iraq war is the example people use most. But you go back to the Vietnam War, which began by an absolute lie as well in, in, in the Gulf of Tonk- Tonkin incident. And. You go back even to the turn of the century when kind of muckrakers were using freedom of the press to take down barons. But at the same time, as you just said, yellow journalism, which was really nothing more than fake news, was used to subvert and undermine all kinds of adversaries and enemies of people in power. So it was pretty predictable that once this new menace got its own name – that it was quickly going to be seized upon for all kinds of sinister purposes. And here in Brazil, you know, just within the last 10 days, um, there was an order from the Supreme Court to censor and remove from the Internet an article critical of a Supreme Court justice on the grounds that it was fake news. And you see this kind of proliferation of laws in many countries that are now trying to confer censorship authority in its name. So... To be a little bit more radical about this, I mean, the default left liberal response to things like this tend to be to call for state regulation. I mean, that's a default response to a lot of inequities in in modern society. And I wanted to ask you what you think about institutional measures to combat fake news. I mean, to give one example, the EU, which has now set itself against disinformation, uh, in a recent uh, report, it says it wants to combat fake news and populist rhetoric and to ensure effective and coordinated action and to protect the EU, its citizens, its policies, and its institutions. So, I mean, here we see a problem, obviously, that despite the appearance of neutrality and a defense of the public realm, what it's actually doing is defending particular institutions, particular organizations from what it calls fake news, and it, it is the, in the position to determine what fake news is. So, firstly, what do we think about these institutional 
responses to fake news, and also what, what could an what could a progressive institutional response be to fake news? I'm I'm actually somewhat baffled by this um, now enduring tension. You might even want to say conflict or contradiction within a lot of left wing Western circles on a lot of these questions. Which, on the one hand, posit correctly, I think, that institutions of authority have become repressive, have become authoritarian, have become um, indifferent to the plight of ordinary people, that they're guided by corruption, they're um, governed by people who are servants of oligarchs and the most powerful and wealthiest in the society, a critique that I think is entirely correct and true, but that then on the other hand simultaneously has a long list of powers that they want to confer in these very same institutions of authority, and somehow there's a hope that those powers will be exercised benevolently by the very people that the left believes are actually malevolent. And that's a major problem that I have, not just with, for example, the demand that governments censor fake news, but that, for example, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey um, and the officials who run Google start cleansing the Internet of things that they decide are true and false or that is extremist or constitute hate speech. Here in Brazil, the Brazilian lab not just the Brazilian up, but across the political spectrum, but certainly the Brazilian enough, there's almost a consensus um, that fake news and hate speech ought to be criminalized, that it ought to yeah. be suppressed. Um, my husband's a left-wing congressman here in Brazil, and he and I agree on most political issues, and that's one of the few things that <laughs> we haven't been able to get a consensus on, and maybe because I come from a country that, despite all of its serious evils, still does protect free speech robustly, and I was a First Amendment lawyer for a long time. Um, but also he doesn't. But also, you personally stand out uh, against a wider liberal drift against free speech, and you maintain a principled position on this, which is something I greatly admire. So it's not just that it's not just a contrast between the U.S. and Brazil, but also right because there's a lot. That, yeah, as you say, the American left is starting increasingly to turn to. And but, but the Brazil example is so interesting because I remember um, in the wake of the assassination of. Marielle Franco, the city councilwoman from Rio de Janeiro, who was um, black and and gay and came from the favelas, Our and will be familiar as we've okay. So yeah, and she was a, a close friend of ours, and and um, the assassination was so brutal and so horrifying, and she was such a symbol of hope that for a long for several days, this kind of un very unparalleled unity emerged, expressing horror and outrage and and disgust at her. Murder in the right in Brazil became afraid that this was going to have political repercussions contrary to their agenda. And so they began inventing lies about her, like she had given birth to an out-of-wedlock child because she was the girlfriend of one of Brazil's worst drug dealers. Um, just the most foul lies to try and sully her reputation and suggest that her assassination was actually because she was linked to drug gangs. And it was spread by right-wing members of Congress and conservative judges. So when I hear my friends on the left say we need to empower the courts or we need to empower the government to censor the internet to get rid of hate speech or to eliminate fake news, the people that they're talking about giving that power to are the same people who are spreading lies when it suits them. Um, And now the government is run by Jair Bolsonaro, who every time there's a very good investigative piece of journalism about his family's corruption, immediately labels it fake news. Those are the people you're going to be empowering if you actually take the position that any institution of authority should have that ability. So the better response, there's no perfect response, right? Because as you said, fake news is a problem if you want to call it fake news, um, is to just, is to counter it with, with persuasive truth, to find ways to persuade people that those things are false and they shouldn't believe them. Yeah, rather than the state's really bad, but also, also, it might be good. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, you very well poked holes in those contradictions. But then let's, rather than just depend on that libertarian, let's call it, in, in quotation marks, libertarian defense of free speech, which I think is very important, but push it a little bit further, because what tactics then might be used against this sort of dissemination of fake news in a world in which the media is increasingly fragmented because you can't just publish a counter argument in 
the Folio de São Paulo or the New York Times or the Guardian um, because they are becoming increasingly siloed off into partisan little realms, right? So one thing which actually struck me, uh, I was reading an article actually on Intercept Brazil, which was published yesterday, on guerrilla tactics used to fight uh, the Bolsonaro WhatsApp groups, which spread fake news, by infiltrating them. You're going to get me in trouble because I haven't read this article on my own. I'm I'm (laughs) letting you have, so they're going to get get me mad at me, but go ahead. No, I I know the article. It came out yesterday. I mean, (laughs) um, But basically, the the tactic is to – that certain groups or even individuals infiltrate Bolsonaro WhatsApp groups and then either become friends with the admin – to the extent that they become an admin and then delete the whole group or go in there and um, I forgot what the kind of trendy internet term for this is, but basically post things which are so extreme, posing as Bolsonaro supporters, that they alienate other Bolsonaro supporters and they leave the group and kind of cut links with the the Bolsonaro web sphere. Um, So, you know, kind of ambivalent on it because it's kind of using dark arts to fight dark arts. But is it a practical response? Do you see more possibility for this sort of response uh, to, to the dissemination of, of, you know, just kind of outright lies um, put about by reactionary figures? I think the problem goes a little bit, for me at least, or a little bit in a different direction and, and, and maybe just a little bit more fundamental to some of the problems that the left is facing, which... And again, my views about the left are formed primarily by the left in the United States, the left in Brazil, and the left in the UK, which tend to be the countries whose politics I follow most closely, although certainly Western Europe as well, but just to a slightly lesser extent, I wouldn't claim expertise about that, which is that I think the principal challenge the left faces is that it has become increasingly insular mm. and um, homogenized and speaking to an increasingly stratified and um, more elite segment of the population and leaving ordinary citizens to be spoken with and to only by right-wing demagogues and populists. Mm -hmm. And so you see that a lot, I think, for example, if you look at the popularity of programs on YouTube. Um, I'm a newly adopted father. We adopted two children Mm Um, 18 months ago, so I'm now looking at the world for the first time through the eyes of how kids see it. And one of the things that I've learned, and I don't know, people with kids probably are going to think this is a really banal observation, but for <laughs> me it's interesting and new because the experience is new, is that my kids don't know what television is. They don't know what Netflix mm-hmm. is. They only know YouTube. YouTube for them is the only source of information that they use. All the shows that they watch are YouTube shows. And if you look at political information and how it's disseminated, it's overwhelmingly dominated by the right Um, in the United States for sure, in Brazil, definitely in the UK. The right has used what's up in Brazil and elsewhere far more effectively than the left has because these are means of communication that require you to speak in a plain way to large audiences, not people with graduate degrees who are, um, you know, intellectual and understand political theory. And therefore, those aren't attractive organs for the left and the left doesn't do that well. And, you know, one of, I think one of the reasons that Jeremy Corbyn has succeeded to the extent that he has, despite all of the rules of conventional wisdom that he continuously and deliberately violates, is because he has kind of maintained a connection with ordinariness and just like this kind of regularness that people crave. And I think the left needs a lot more than that. I mean, we're in a country um, that for a long time was dominated by the rich and um, yet was taken over by a really charismatic labor union leader, Lula da Silva, because he came from poverty and had the language of speaking to workers and people. And, you know, he made grammatical errors and he didn't speak formal Portuguese very well. Um, And I think that really is a big part of the problem with the left. So I have no objection morally or ethically to the left going in and subverting these dark art tools using dark arts. But I think the much harder challenge, but ultimately the more important one is to figure out why the left is lagging so far behind in using these instruments. Absolutely. I mean, it's right that the left is completely cut off or largely cut off in many countries from the workers' movement, and the workers' movement itself is greatly diminished 
defeated uh, in some cases very severely, like in the UK, where probably the defeat of the workers' movement was the most abrupt uh, out of anywhere in the developed world. Uh, but the case applies mutatis mutandis everywhere else. Um, and I think especially in, the, in times like today where workers are less organized, people are more atomized, that to, to reach a popular audience, you do need to have a completely different approach. And I guess you see it as well in the, the dismissal of populism. And even though a lot of populist uprisings and um, manifestations, whether it's Five Star in Italy or, you know, Jeremy Corbyn or Podemos in Spain, and, you know, there's a whole world of difference between those. But the disparagement of that, rather than a trying, a seeking to try to meet that halfway and try to understand, okay, what is the consciousness of people today and what are their concerns? What are their immediate material concerns? So a lot of the discourse from the left seems to be relying upon an accepted script of what left policies should be and we, and a kind of ignoring of what of what is actually being said, what the actual demands are. Um, and I think that that gulf is very difficult to to bridge. And I'm saying that maybe you can respond to that, but also as a, as a way to bridging to a discussion of, about trust and cynicism today. So we were talking earlier about how one of the reasons the Trump-Russia conspiracy resonated, became attractive, was because it was kind of a unifying theory, a simplistic explanation for complicated events that gave people a sense of comfort about the world. You don't need to worry that the world has been uprooted. It was this foreign villain that just, like, a, in a film, mm. you know, kind of did this evil act, and it became appealing for that reason. I think sometimes the left is vulnerable and succumbs to the, to cheaper and easier tactics so if you want to understand why Trump won, if you want to understand why Bolsonaro won, if you want to understand why Brexit won, if you want to understand the rise of far-right uber-nationalist groups in places in Western Europe that have always been regarded as left-wing enclaves where mm -hmm. far-right extremism could never flourish but now is, it's so much simpler and easier and more cathartic to just say – the reason for it is because the people who are supporting it are racist or hateful xenophobes or misogynists or you just call them names. You dismiss them as inferior to you mm -hmm. because they're full of hatred and primitive sentiments and you just declare them evil and then yeah. say um, – the case, I think is the worst in the UK possibly because – there, the vote for Brexit, you know, I don't think it's the same at all as voting for Trump or Bolsonaro. You know, Trump, Brexit, at least in, in essence, is a, is a claim for, for popular sovereignty. At least that's one important aspect and, of it. And, and, and a, a view that the elites in Brussels have embraced ideologies and policies that either by design or indifference have been devastating to yeah. – Huge numbers of people, a very valid <laughs> yeah, critique, yeah. right? So, um, but I do see that as similar to both Trump. I mean, there are, there are obviously Brexit and Trump and Bolsonaro and every similar movement has an element of it that's driven by xenophobia and racism and all that. Um, but Brazil, for example, is a majority non-white country. Um, if you were to get the votes of rich people, um, or even, you know, using that, the, the broadest possible definition of that term in Brazil, you would get the votes of 10% or 15%, not 55%, which yeah. is what Bolsonaro ended up with. And I remember, you know, it, for a while it was kind of taboo to admit that you were a Bolsonaro supporter. People would do it anonymously on the internet. Um, but most people in decent society wouldn't admit it. And then I started seeing people slowly come out of the closet. And then we started seeing actual friends of ours. Mm, yeah starting to admit to us, you know, an interracial, same-sex leftist couple um, were, that, that they were going to vote for Bolsonaro. And some of them were black and some of them were living in favelas and some of them were from working class uh, communities. And I realized that they weren't doing it because of Bolsonaro's racism or homophobia or yeah. misogyny. Obviously, they were doing it despite that out of desperation or anger um, over what the ruling class had done. Not the left or the right parts of the rule, just the ruling, the establishment in general. They wanted just to burn it down. Mm -hmm. And until the left figures out a way to stop being seen as guardians of the status quo or elite institutions that have contempt for common people or as culturally repressive forces, they're going to continue to alienate people and drive them into the arms of 
Jair Bolsonaro's and and a lot worse people like that. And I, I you know, I I I think I mean the reason why I think the left needs self critique a lot more than it generally is willing to subject itself to is because it isn't winning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important to, to restate that. The left isn't winning. I mean, there are some little points of hope with yeah. Bernie or Jeremy Corbyn, but by and large, left yeah, is not winning. Um, and that's something that can be too easily glossed over. And I, I guess one of the ways that this, uh, this be- expresses itself, the left's own sense of defeat and distance from the, the mass of, of, of workers, of, of ordinary people, of however you wish to, to class uh, the, the great majority in society, uh, is, I guess, through a certain cultural radicalism, which just doesn't chime with people. And however much you might uh, defend certain of those points, uh, it's interesting that it's seen as, as cultural, as, as a certain form of cultural repression coming from the left, which I think if you were to confront a lot of left-wing people with that notion, they would be appalled. They're like, no, hang on, we're on the side of freedom and personal liberation and self-expression. How can we be seen as repressive? And it's interesting. I mean, this is seen with with Bolsonaro. I mean, people, I think one of the most compelling takes I, I saw of why there was popular working class support for Bolsonaro is that people had lost all hope and were wanting to defend what little they had left, which is to say maybe their faith and their family. You know, I mean, family in the, in the broadest sense, not necessarily the nuclear family, but, you know, their, their intimate sphere. And that maybe Bolsonaro giving them guns would allow them to, to preserve that in a world which is fiercely competitive and violent and so on. And I think maybe there's a, a lack of recognition of that that sense of vulnerability, that sense of insecurity uh, from a lot of people. And, and the left maybe is not rec- recogn- doesn't recognize that sufficiently. Uh, absolutely. And I also, you know, I also I, I agree with that completely. Um, and, and if you, you know, when I asked my friends who are supporting Bolsonaro who are not obvious Bolsonaro supporters why they were doing it, they would just say things like, when I send my daughter to school in the morning, I don't think she's going to come home at mm-hmm. night. Um, when I step outside my house, I often am in the middle of crossfire. When people, you know, I have no hope of sending my kids to college or getting them out of the favelas. When you put people into that desperate situation, sooner or later, they're going to realize who the authors of their fate are and turn against them, especially if they have an effective demagogue encouraging them to do that. But I think there's another aspect of it which is difficult to discuss. Um, you probably have talked about Angela Nagel's book before, I assume, mm-hmm. just given. She's, yeah, she's going to be on very soon. Actually. Okay, good, good, <laughs> good. So then, no, good. You'll have somebody who's, um, who will make your audience even angrier than I might, <laughs> which I'm always happy about that. Uh, nobody does that quite as well as she does. Um, but you know, one of the, the fascinating and disturbing aspects for me in Brazil is that a major part of Bolsonaro's movement early on wasn't really working class people as much as it was internet savvy young people. Mm-hmm. And that's a really fascinating question, right? Which is why would 20 year olds and 22 year olds and 18 year olds be attracted to a military captain promising to restore order and authority and military rule and Mm -hmm. empower the police when a natural part of youth is supposed to be a rebellion against authority. But because it's transgressive, right? I mean, it's seen as that. uh, Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm trying to preempt you. No, no, no. I'm glad you did because I I just want that's exactly I'll I'll just share an antidote with you that was actually an epiphany for me on this question. Even though I had already read Angela Nagel's book, there's always a difference between understanding something in the abstract and and under and and experiencing it viscerally, which is, um, I think in late 2017, I had called Bolsonaro a fascist on Twitter, but not in any prominent way, just like in a replies. But his name, his Twitter name, was linked, and even though he was running for president, he was obviously searching his own Twitter name and saw it. And he had attacked me before, but like for whatever reason, this sat really poorly with him, and he decided to use an epithet for gay people, which essentially means faggot. Um, which is a popular phrase in Portuguese. It's burning the donut, um, which doesn't have a meaning in in English, but in in Portuguese it basically evokes anal sex. Um, and he put it into Google Translate because he doesn't speak English, <laughs> and it's 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 Kemara Hoshka in Portuguese. <laughs> but then it became burning the donut. So he tweeted it out right to me and at me, and he said, "Oh, I know you burn the donut. Don't worry. Be happy with the thumbs up." I remember this. Yeah. And so for a month, I had nothing in my Twitter feed other than like 19-year-old Brazilian sending me 
gifts of like a donut with a fire and they weren't sending it with hatred. I mean, obviously there was a component of it that was homophobic, but the predominant sentiment wasn't like malice or hatred. It was just meme culture. Yeah. It was just fun. They thought it was funny. And like the, the, what I I remember too, what, what, what happened was all of the kind of major leading media figures at Globo and Estadão and Folia who hate me, and have been attacking me for three years and demeaning me, you know, suddenly rose up very sternly and seriously in my defense and said, I'm no fan of Glenn Greenwald, but it is never legitimate to to disqualify somebody. You know, it's very just like schoolmarmish, like saying, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to say this. And so that license that he gave to people to break the cultural rules and the speech codes that yeah. have been imposed on them was a major part because when you're 20, you want to be free. You don't want to be suppressed. And I think we have to be careful about how we talk about that because we don't want the left to abandon important social causes of combating racism, homophobia, yeah. xenophobia, and the like. But it's important to think about how you do that effectively. And it's important if you're a political movement to make certain that your tactics you're using are attracting people to your cause rather than alienating and repelling them. Absolutely. It's, I think it's the mistrust of so many institutions. The ones which end up being receptacles for trust are things like the church or the military, often obviously quite reactionary institutions, which presents a problem. But we're seeing similar phenomena in the West, what used to be called the West, I guess. And what do we call it now? I never know. I don't, I don't know if I do North, South, East, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, let's say in, in North America and Europe, uh, it, those, all those countries are severely afflicted by a, a trust deficit. Um, and we can see this very clearly with the media. I mean, you can look at any polls about and surveys about what are the least trusted professions, and journalists come really, really low down. Like barely ahead of pedophiles. Yeah, right. <laughs> just a little bit ahead, but barely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so just lock up journalists just to be safe, just to be on the safe <laughs> exactly. side. Exactly. Um, but I think I, I want to ask, when you are in your work, you – write a lot about surveillance, obviously. And I found an interesting quote which, which brought a lot of this to, to mind and kind of condensed it. Uh, the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, Betsy Reed, um, said in, in a profile of, of, of yourself, uh, warned of pale imitations of Glenn, uh, who are so convinced that they're being lied to all the time that anything that the intelligence community says can't possibly tr- be true. Now, I don't want to just focus on the intelligence community because I have no interest in defending the fact that they might sometimes be right about things. That's not interesting. I want to apply it a little bit more widely. How do you deal with that disillusionment? Because you want people to be skeptical and skeptical of power, but at the same time not disillusioned to the extent that they reject any institution, any organization, and recoil to a world of either little silos of their own political bedfellows or the intimate sphere of of the family, basically mistrusting anyone else bar your family and maybe your pastor, to take a kind of Brazilian example. Well, I think... That is a dangerous dynamic. Um, I don't think we ought to celebrate the collapse of faith and trust in institutions. We need journalists who can, with authority and people's uh, trust, pronounce what's true and false. Um, we need uh, government bodies that can perform functions in the public interest and do so with the faith and confidence of the public. When that tr- faith and, and trust collapses, that's what creates the space for demagogues and extremists. I mean, that's just a basic lesson mm. from history. So the fact that it's well-deserved doesn't mean it's a cause of celebration. It's actually a cause of, of great concern. But I don't actually begin that inquiry the way Betsy Reed did, who's the, the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, in that quote by essentially placing blame on the people who she regards as excessively skeptical or cynical, I place the burden on the institutions that have lost this faith to engage in self-critique and to ask why it is that they mm-hmm. have fallen so far in the esteem with which they're held and how they can correct that. And that, to me, is the far more disturbing phenomenon, which is that these institutions of journalism, of uh, politics, seem to feel like they have a natural entitlement due to their intrinsic superiority. 
to have this place of uh, respect and trust and credibility given to them without having to actually earn it. And this is an arrogance and a kind of sense of entitlement that I think large numbers of people have now started to perceive. It's a very repellent trait for anybody to have a sense of entitlement that way. And it's amazing. It's been amazing to me to watch over the last two and a half years. Trump has purposely positioned the media as his primary enemy. Bolsonaro actually did the same thing. Um, and the reason they're doing that is actually quite true. They know, as you pointed out in your, in your question, that journalists are held in very low esteem. They're one of the most despised groups in the society. So it's great to be able to have that be your enemy and force. It's kind of like what, you know, Bashar al-Assad tried to do was to say, I know you hate me, but the only alternative is ISIS. So, yeah. so pick. <laughs> Um, that's what Trump's trying to do. No matter how much you hate me, I'm my enemy is the New York Times. Yeah. Um, and journalists are really good at expressing anger and of offense and indignation over this, but they're very bad at asking why that tactic works. Why have these institutions of authority lost so much confidence and trust? And if you look at what they did in the run-up to the Iraq War, if you look at what they did in the prelude to the 2008 financial crisis, if you look at what they did with the, the last three years in propagating a conspiracy theory that was based on pure hysteria and paranoia and jingoism. The answer is very clear, um, but they don't want to think about ways to earn back the trust. They want to insist upon their intrinsic right to it. And so part of what I try and do is to find ways that are different and unconventional. That's why I go on Fox News. That's why I try and I do a lot of right-wing media, including YouTube shows here in Brazil, because I do think it's important to have figures who can kind of earn credibility across these divides. Um, And it's hard to do. It's hard to figure out. It's easier to just dismiss people or to say that they're stupid and that's why they're believing in fake news, it's a lot harder to figure out how to persuade them that they ought to think different ways. Yeah. And that, and the, and the media's defense of itself is often in a sectoral or corporate sense rather than a defense of the truth and the value of journalism and so on because they couldn't probably get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> they know that's a losing, yeah. a losing proposition for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, the problem runs deep. I would suggest that the problem runs even deeper. Um, that you know, we, one can explain the loss of trust in particular institutions through events and exposures. And, you know, uh, someone gets a, some exposure of malfeasance and then you go, well, that's why people lost trust. That might work in certain determinate cases, but it doesn't explain why across different societies and across all sorts of institutions, this sort of loss of trust happens. Um, and I think, I mean, I always reach for the fact that one lacks the today people lack the interpretive frames to, to make sense of the world. Um, so the way that you latch onto that is that there's people up there in power doing bad things and a kind of conspiratorial framing of, of power relations, let's say. Um, I don't want to put that too fine a point on that, but that is more or less the, the kind of predominant mode of thinking about mistrust in, in institutions. And, you know, I, I think to refer back to what I int- put in the introduction – which is what we call on the podcast neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, which is something which we've done to try to condense all these different, different sim- all these different symptoms um, of this breakdown: the inability to accept, explain, and respond to a crisis in the neoliberal order. And I think obviously the Russia Gate stuff is probably the most clear example of it. But there's many other things, um, many other a- aspects to it in there as well. And I think this this loss of trust is something which is not grasped, right? And that, you know, to, to use a Russiagate example, people rely on Cold War narratives. I mean, the end, the end of history, the period from, let's say, 1989 to 2016, if you prefer, or, you know, uh, 2008, if you want to take the global financial crisis, you know, these things are obviously emergent and evolving. They're not clear cut, but that's more or less a periodization. That that period was already an era of confusion, you know. So a lot of the liberal establishment today likes to refer back to those days, to the mid-90s or mid-2000s, as a kind of glory days when everything made sense and things worked and followed the rules that they were supposed to. But that was already a very confused time when you didn't have capitalism versus socialism, fund basically, as, as the cohering frames to make sense of the world. 
And today, with the breakdown of that neoliberal order, things have become even more confused. I mean, do, do you buy into that periodization? Do you, do you think that's right? Or do, in your experience, have you seen this trajectory played out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, probably been, now that you put it that way, the primary focal point of my work for the last three years, which is my refusal to monomaniacally focus on Donald Trump or even to focus on him at all as some kind of cause mm. of anything as opposed to what I see him as, which is nothing more than just an obvious symptom of a pathology that has been cultivated and festering and growing for several decades. And if you are the people who, while in power, planted the seeds that have now sprouted in this really horrific way, the last thing that you want is anybody interrogating what the underlying causes are. You want history to begin in 2016 when Donald Trump won or when Brexit was enacted. And you want everybody to focus on every cause other than yourself and the ideology that you successfully implanted as a consensus to the point where the end of history was declared in its name, right? Designed to celebrate it as the ultimate pinnacle of human achievement, which is really what that phrase was intended to convey, that the neoliberal order was the nirvana that we've been spending millennia looking for and have now finally discovered. And I think that most political discourse in the West, because political discourse by definition is controlled by elites is all about this desperation to conceal what really is the most important truth, which is that the ideology that we were told for so long was our salvation and that they're now trying to depict as this kind of gory days of the past, as you said, something that we ought to be desperate to return to as though it's going to save us from the situation that it itself actually created. The financial crisis wasn't really a big deal anyway. I mean, it was just a blip, right? It was just a little <laughs> blip, a little, a little accident or, you know, things like, um, you know, the war in Iraq, yeah. um, the torture regime that was um, set up, the disappearance of huge industries from major countries and states that left hundreds of millions of people without any possibility for an economic future. These are all fundamental crises that have been caused by deliberate policies that were selected, chosen, and defended by a set of easily identifiable elites. You know exactly who the culprits are. And those are the people who are most desperate to ensure that some other narrative emerges so that the blame is pinned on somebody other than them and their ideas in large part, not just because they want to preserve their legacy or avoid the consequences, but because what they really want is the reemergence of that ideology to the extent that it's eroded and withered away. They want it to return. And so by depicting it as the glory days of the past when things are better, they're hoping to repackage it and rebrand it and resell it as the only alternative that we have to right-wing extremism and and right-wing populism. Yeah, and I think the longer they hold on, the worse the explosion and the collapse of it will be. Um, well, and and that's why I think I think it's such an important point. Like the only debates worth having, there's no point if you're anywhere near the universe of the left in talking about like why Nigel Farage or Marine Le Pen or Donald Trump or Zaire Bolsonaro are, like, are bad. Like there's no value in that. The only action is the question of what alternative is going to be presented to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not a, there because that debate is happening at an elite level. If you're attacking Donald Trump, you're siding with establishment Democrats against him or, you know, you're siding with Macron against Le Pen. And that's where the level where that discourse happens rather than appealing exactly. to the majority of the population. I, it's striking that the that the decline of liberalism, I guess, to put it in that way, a corruption of liberalism of um and, and its concrete embodiment, which is to say the liberal establishment or the neoliberal establishment, if you prefer, today, that to the extent that establishments in the West have been able to uphold liberal values, and of course that was always um, compromised to a large degree, but I think as a lot of your work has detailed, it's gotten worse. I mean, just in terms of the sheer degree to which the state has 
arbitrary power over citizens' lives. That's become worse. And so that that liberalism, which used to exist to a, to maybe a greater degree, that there was a certain respect for democracy, there was a respect for electorates, there was a general respect for free speech, there was a greater, um, you know, greater preservation of civil liberties, again, always contingent. There was a lot of, in the U.S., uh, the whole racial component to that, where a whole section of the population was more or less excluded from that. Nevertheless, one can see a, a, a definite decline. And it's amazing that it was, it was basically the threat of socialism which held in place liberalism. And you're a principled liberal. I mean, I don't know what word you would describe yourself as, but I wanted to kind of round out this. Just chat. any word but that one. Okay, cool. We're not going to do that. I mean, I, I, I have a I understand with what you mean yeah. by that. I, I, it, well, I was, I was going to elaborate a little bit on it, maybe. So then, and then maybe you can tell me, like, okay. still shut up. You're completely <laughs> off, the, off track. Um, but I wanted to finish, if you don't mind, on something a little bit more yeah, personal, political. Ahead. We like to, on this podcast, we're interested in how people become politicized, how people might become radicalized, how people change the politics over time, and not because of of the kind of contemporary imagination of this, which is that your politics are an expression of your authentic self and so on. But that forces behind your back sometimes lead you into different positions. So I want to ask whether one, I mean, I think you, if, if I can call you liberal, it's in the very best possible sense in the terms okay, of a, a principled defense of political liberalism, of, of democracy and liberty, and that you are, want to use political power to see those values realized in the, in the like world. philosophical kind yeah. of broader historical sense. Yeah, and and today that would place you as most as a leftist because right. there is there hardly are any of those liberals left. Um, so I want to ask whether you feel that over the past decade or two decades that you've become more radical, or would you say that you've just stood in place and the world's become worse? I mean, so my political tra- tra- trajectory is kind of odd because. Um, I mean, I was politicized really early on. Um, I had a grandfather who ran for city council in our little town, but he took it very seriously and did it through this frame of running against the corrupt condominium bosses in our South Florida community. And he was kind of this old-style 1930s FDR socialist, you know, like a, like a real socialist, mm-hmm. not like a soft Bernie Sanders socialist. Um and, and, and so I don't want to say I was apolitical because I was actually quite politicized. I ran for city council at his kind of urging when I was 17. So I had like a kind of political childhood. But then when I went to law school and I started practicing law, I kind of lost interest in like kind of the conventional political debate. There's also the fact that you, one can be very close to political administration and be very non-political. Precisely. Right? And, you know, I didn't think that the debates of the 1990s, I mean, with the end of history being declared – and, you know, things like the Monica Lewinsky scandal dominating U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, the war in Yugoslavia. And there was, it wasn't like there was nothing. But it just wasn't very compelling to me. The, what, what, what I found more, um, more profound and more interesting was just the Constitution, um, which I actually consider to be, despite my critiques of U.S. history and the U.S. government to be a really valuable, enlightened document because it was designed to both limit power and prevent the corrupt abuse of power as well as to preserve individual liberty, to do both at the same time. Um, and notwithstanding the obvious you know, flaws and moral evils of the people who wrote it and of the time and all of that, um, I still to this day regard that document as – um, kind of a remarkable innovation in how political uh, ideals are thought about mm-hmm. um, and how we organize our, ourselves politically. So for me, that was always the, the, the guiding principle was defend these concepts, defend these liberties. I wasn't interested in the partisan political debates of the day. Um, and it was really 9-11 and the attack on 9-11 and the way it transformed not just the United States, but Western countries around the world where they became much more um, – they saw, they seized the opportunity to kind of prioritize fear of foreign threats and people's immediate safety at the expense of their attachment to these individual liberties. That made me become more directly politically involved by stopping practicing on writing about politics. And then in the course of doing that, for the first time, I just started, started to try and start from scratch about first principles – um, because I wasn't 
to the extent I was thinking about politics at all, I was like reading the New York Times and the Atlantic and the New Yorker and not realizing the extent to which I was being propagandized. I was just kind of reading them before work and not reading them very critically. And so once I started focusing on it, you know, full time, I realized that the whole kind of framework, the whole um, template was just all wrong. So I just deleted it all and kind of started to try and start from scratch. And that was when I started realizing just the full extent of the falsehoods and the deceit and the propaganda in which you end up immersed unless you make a deliberate decision to remove yourself from it. And I think I've just become increasingly radicalized from that point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I guess in that case, I want to finish with something which is, it sounds like one of these softball questions, but it's actually one of these really annoying ones because it's too open-ended, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Sometimes uh, open-ended questions are good because it tests w what, where people decide to go with them. So. Right, exactly. Um, so I want to finish by asking – I was going to ask what are you optimistic about today, but that's just – that's rubbish. So what I'm going to say it's more in terms of – in terms of will rather than optimism. What do you think is the most important political struggle today – if you are in the U.S. or if you're in Britain, or maybe take whatever context you prefer, or maybe if you want to refer to several of them, uh, what do you think is where you really put your shoulder to the grindstone? Like, where, where, what, what, where is the exercise of political will most required today? Yeah, I think in everything we were talking about, um, the collapse of neoliberalism and the resulting disorder and chaos that it has created creates obvious dangers, and we're seeing what those dangers are, but it also creates incredible opportunity where ideologies that previously were relegated to the fringes and the margins are now viable because people are looking for alternatives to what had so for so long been the only game in town. And that means that if you're a skillful right-wing demagogue, you can exploit those fears and that chaos to your benefit and people like Duterte or Bolsonaro can be elected and legitimately elected and genuinely popular. But it also means that you could have a Jeremy Corbyn or a new kind of leftism that for so many decades, pretty much for my whole life, was regarded as way too far off on the fringe to ever succeed in the democratic world or at least in, in the West. And I think that the return, for example, of the socialist label that popular politicians are actively embracing, um, which for so long was considered completely taboo. I mean, you can find this hilarious interview with Bernie Sanders when he first became the mayor of Burlington. He was interviewed on the Today Show. I think it was like 1987 or something. And they treated him like he was some exotic creature from the wild. How can a socialist, you're a socialist. What do you want to, do you want gulags and like a side beat? You know, that was yeah, yeah. the connotation. And he had to really, um, combat that, that term. Whereas now people are standing up and saying, yeah, I'm a socialist. Um, I want, you know, free college and I want Medicare for all and I want, you know, and Jeremy Corbyn um, who can't be dislodged and has a chance to actually become prime minister of mm -hmm. the of, of of Great Britain. You see these opportunities that can only be valuably exploited if we're willing to abandon the kind of safe conventional mainstream assumptions that we've been trained to believe are the only viable ones and to use our imagination to create new alternatives that people will tell us aren't plausible or viable or possible, but actually are. And I mean, you had said you didn't want to ask me about why I'm optimistic, but I'm going to nonetheless answer it anyway. That is why I'm optimistic. Um, I see it everywhere, you know, where – the people who are the neoliberals are, I mean, they're disappearing. That whole, the Blairites, you know, the French socialists, um, the kind of oligarchical center left. And they're any, all, any attempt to set up a new party trying to rekindle the flame just f dramatically fails every time. I mean, you see it with the, the independent group in the UK trying to set up and failing. I mean, there's Mac nothing, as well, there's you know. no enjoyment I derive more <laughs> than watching that independent group each and every day <laughs> fall so hard in their face that they make their collective, they're the That's worst right. people on the planet and their failures are just the most enjoyable things ever. But you see that in country after country, right? I mean, the, that whole ideology being so discredited. So, of course, it opens up space on the right, but it also opens up huge amounts of space on the left. And that's why I spend most of my time 
talking not about the dangers of the right, which are obvious to anybody with yeah. a functioning brain, but the opportunities on the left. Absolutely. Yeah, it's maybe even the case that a certain political radicalism is more realistic today than replaying those same old shoes. Definitely, definitely. All right, Glenn, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. That was brilliant. Yeah, I uh, know. I really enjoyed the discussion, too. I, I do a lot of interviews where I never have to use my brain because I'm just answering the same questions I've been asked a zillion times, and this was exactly the opposite. It was really engaging. I really enjoyed it. Great to hear. Uh, that's what we're all about. Cheers, Glenn. All right, great. Thanks. Brilliant to chat to Glenn just there. Coming up, the big Bunga series on the Californian ideology. Alpha Bunga Bunga is flying out to California to record a number of discussions on what might just be the hegemonic liberal ideology of our times. It's that love child of the hippies and the yuppies, Buddhist capitalism, high-tech, hyper-capitalist individualism with Zen characteristics. The trip is sponsored by the University of California Irvine School of Humanities project, States of Wellness, courtesy of the wonderful Catherine Liu. Very pleased to be taking part in this. We're going to be bringing you some really critical stuff on the ideology of wellness, self-care, health, and so on, as well as on meritocracy, the Silicon Valley-driven new American class structure, the new urbanism, and therapy culture. If you like the sound of this, why not subscribe to the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history? It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. We are back very, very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye.